morning. Psalm 95, verse 6 says, Come, let us worship. Now, if I were to ask you to define worship for me, could you do it? Now, there are many static definitions of worship floating around out there. Here are just a few that maybe you have heard before. Worship is declaring God's worth. Worship is not primarily a state of the art, but a state of the heart. Worship is all that we are responding to all that he is. I like that. It's from John MacArthur, actually. Worship is a taste of heaven. Now, many have also spoken of the importance of worship in life. Calvin Coolidge, for instance, said that it's only when men begin to worship that they begin to grow. Someone else has observed that as you worship, so you serve. According to some statistics, however, the so-called worship that we engage in, you and I engage in on Sunday mornings, is far from a taste of heaven for most people. The late R.C. Sproul, for example, a respectable theologian and scholar when he was alive, once said that there is a crisis of worship in our land. People are staying away from churches in droves. Citing one survey, Sproul revealed that the two chief reasons people drop out of church is that it's boring and it's irrelevant. He says, quote, if people find worship boring and irrelevant, I, it can only mean that they have no sense of the presence of God in it, unquote. I'd have to agree with him. His poignant words remind me of the sad story I heard of a small boy who, after going to church with his father one Sunday morning and before getting into bed that night, prayed these words. He said, dear God, we had a really good time at church today, but I wish you had been there. Now, the Bible speaks frequently about the action of worship being accompanied by a variety of responses, such as weeping, enthusiastic singing, dancing, falling down in fear, and exuberant joyfulness. In no place, however, in the scriptures do we ever find the reaction of boredom. Never. Nor do we ever get the impression from any context on worship that I have studied that it is irrelevant. There is nothing more relevant to our lives as human beings as understanding and practicing the presence of the living God. Is that right? Have you ever tried to define worship I've attempted it on many occasions only to come up short of an acceptable, all-inclusive statement. Uh, words can only go so far. Uh, words that have no experiential meaning lie flat on the page. I mean, trying to explain true worship is like trying to explain a kiss. Now, you've heard me mention that before. Just a few weeks ago, I gave you a scientific definition of a kiss explained by Henry Gibson back in the 1800s. And this is it. The anatomical juxtaposition of two orbicularis oris muscles in a state of contraction. You remember that when I told you that? Sounds great, doesn't it? Romantic. You can also look up the grammatical definition in the dictionary, and this is what you get. To touch or press with the lips slightly pursed, and then often to part them and to emit a smacking sound in an expression of affection, love, greeting, reverence, etc. Another dictionary says, calls it a salute or caress with the lips, a gentle touch or contact. I don't know about you, but none of those really does much for me. It says nothing to me, virtually, about what a kiss really is. Somehow it doesn't capture the essence of, of what a young mother does when she tenderly places her lips on the forehead of her newborn child. A salute or caress with the lips. Is that what young newlyweds do? A salute each other? I mean, caress with the lips? Is that what your heavily lipsticked great aunt used to do to you at family reunions when you were a kid? That's not the way I remember it. No way. That was no salute, and it was no caress. To me, it was an absolute and total humiliation. <laughs> now, does that static definition adequately describe what happens when a father gives a daughter away to be married? 
Does it harness the emotion and power of what is shared between a loving husband and a wife? You see, just as words cannot explain the personal and powerful experience of a kiss, neither can words capture the power and the intimacy of experiencing true worship. We understand worship by doing it. The more we put into it, the more we get out of it. And I might add, the more we'll look forward to it, just like a kiss. Worship affects our lives profoundly. And that's the concept I want us to engage with today. Now, the Westminster Shorter Confession asks this question. What is the chief end of man? And the answer it gives is simply this. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is one of the best descriptions of worship that I've heard. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let me ask you a question. Do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy God? Or do you enjoy the thought of God? Do you enjoy God? I can't force you to enjoy God any more than I can force you to enjoy a kiss. But I can give you the biblical instructions concerning worship and we can all take the opportunities to follow them and hopefully enjoy God. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 16 and this is where we're going to devote most of our attention this morning. 1 Chronicles chapter 16. In this passage of scripture, mind you, there are 24 imperatives. 24 of them. Some of them are repeated, but there are about 17 different elements of worship contained in this passage that we are commanded to follow. I believe this is one of the best models of a worship service that we can find in the Bible. But as I said, it serves only as a guideline to us. What happens with it, whether or not we sense God's presence in our midst, is determined by our own actions and by our heart attitudes. So if you're there in 1 Chronicles 16, follow along with me. I'm going to read the first six or seven verses. And they brought in the ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread and a portion of meat and a raisin cake. He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph the chief, and second to him, Zechariah, then Jehiel, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jehiel, with the musical instruments, harps, lyres. Also, Asaph played loud-sounding cymbals. And Benaiah and Jehaziel and the priests blew trumpets continually before the ark of God, the covenant of God. Then on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. Now, the background to this text is the celebration of the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem after a long time absence. It was a celebration of worship to the Lord. It's interesting and important to note that David had appointed a worship team to lead this celebration, which was observed on a regular basis. If you look at verse 6, you find the word that they blew the trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was constant and ongoing, not nonstop. It means that they did it on a regular basis. In other words, it wasn't a one-shot deal. The one thing that I can think that we can learn from this passage is that worship is not necessarily something mystical, but something incredibly practical. God planted within each one of us a desire and a capacity to worship. What we worship, mind you, determines where our hearts are truly focused. Chuck Swinzall once wrote, that, quote, we who worship our work and work at our play and play at our worship have gotten things all fouled up, unquote. And he's right. We need, rather, to be working at our worship because it's worth it. It's worth the investment. 
So what's involved in all of this? Well, let's start to unpack this text of Scripture. Number one, worship involves thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Verse 7 says that David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. And in verse 8, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. And then down in verse 34, we also read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he, his good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, out of curiosity, I broke down the commands of this passage into three different categories to see where all the emphasis was lying. And though many overlap, I want to give you the breakdown that I came up with. 55% fell into the verbal category. 28% were primarily physical actions. And the other 17% were more spiritual, internal, emotional responses. Giving thanks here literally means to use the hand. It emphasizes the expression or public proclamation of praise to God. It's quite often expressed with the raising of the hands in praise to God. By the way, I found out in my study that there is no independent concept of thanks in the Old Testament. Not in and of itself. Thanks is always included in praise. You cannot engage in praising God without ending up with an intense heart of thanksgiving for who God is and what he's done. Now, this public praise was given in the tabernacle under the direction of the Levites appointed by David strictly for the ministry of celebration here. It was a major part of worship to be carried on forever. It is adoration given wholeheartedly and pure-heartedly. Rabbi Abraham Heschel once said that the surest way to suppress our ability to understand the meaning of God is to take things for granted. It's a true statement, isn't it? Worship is pretty much worthless without a clean heart, a clear conscience, and a confident conviction that our God is an awesome God. And he is, isn't he? C.S. Lewis once said that, quote, praise is inner health made audible, unquote. I love that statement. Praise is inner health made audible. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 kind of reflects that. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks or to confess his name. Folks, don't ever take this command lightly to give thanks. Listen carefully. If we can't worship God with the fruit of our lips, something is desperately wrong in the depths of our hearts. Ask God to heal it and put a song of praise there instead. Psalm 51, 15 says, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare thy praise. It's interesting that our earthly worship services usually revolve around three essential elements. The praising of God, praying to God, and the preaching of the word of God. Right? You'd agree? That's what we do most often when we get together for worship service. Do you realize that when we worship in heaven, when we get to heaven and we're going to be worshiping God, only one of those elements is going to survive in our worship? Praising. We won't need to pray because we'll be in God's presence face to face. And we're not going to preach the word because we're going to be living with the word. The living word. So if praise is the only thing that we're going to do in heaven that we do here on earth, we better be well rehearsed, shouldn't we? Here's your worship assignment for this week. And I'm going to give you a bunch of these throughout this passage, okay? Worship assignment, write it down. Right up here. Sometime today... Take the opportunity to give thanks and praise to God for one, just one good thing that has happened in your life since this pandemic began. Take that opportunity to praise and thank God for something. All right, number two, worship involves invitation. Worship involves invitation. Look at the second part of verse eight. It says, 
at the beginning here, oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Call upon his name. If we are to worship God, he should be the guest of honor. Is that right? Somebody say amen. <laughs> He's the guest of honor. It's not about us. It's about him being the guest of honor. How often in our services do we invite God to come? Thank God that Russ Claybrook did that this morning in his prayer. Did you catch it? He invited God's presence here. But how often do you get up in the morning and before you come to church, before you enter these doors, do you ever say, God, please come and be present with us today? Now, I know he's, he's generally present in everywhere we go, but do you ever invite God to be tangibly present in your life with you, with us in this place? Our prayer should be, when we sit in these chairs, the first thing should be, oh Lord, please come and be with us today for without your presence, we don't have anything to celebrate. It is our distinguishing mark as Christians and as people of God that God is with us. Exodus chapter 33 and verses 15 and 16 are classic verses of this. And Moses said, and he intercedes in his intercessory prayer. In verse 16, 15, he says, Then he said to him, Moses said to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I, and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? What is the difference between a worship celebration such as we have here and we engage in here today and a concert that people go to for a rock band? What's the difference? It should be the fact that God is present, and that we've invited him here and that he has come. Number three, worship involves making him known. Worship involves making him known. Verse 8, make known his deeds among the people. Engaging in the true worship of God is like taking a precious jewel and turning it around and observing it from every angle, turning it this way and that way so that we can take in every facet of God's beauty. To a newly engaged girl, for instance, a diamond is a dream come true, right? She can't stop looking at it. She can't stop showing it off. She figures out a way to get her hand in a prominent position so that people see it, right? Now, fast forward to the wife of 50 years. That same gem is a rock of remembrance to that woman. Symbol of 50 years of faithful love. Now, likewise, in worship, we must see God from every angle, displaying and remembering every facet of his character, his deeds, and his faithfulness over the years to his people. Worship is viewing God from every vantage point possible and gasping at his beauty. The Israelites constantly rehearsed his mighty works and miracles in song as they traveled. The songs of ascents were a lot of that, dealing with that, pilgrim psalms. Many of our old hymns and some of our new ones do the same thing. That, that is an important element in our worship, and most often it is practiced in song. That is why the next three elements of worship are of such significance here, and we find it in verse 9. Worship involves singing, worship involves making music, and worship involves conversation. Look at verse 9. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. One of the best New Testament passages that I can point to which really gives the sense of these commands is found in Ephesians chapter 5. And you may have thought of it even as I was reading those words. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, beginning in verse 18, says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And what happens when you're filled with the Spirit? What's one of the first things that happens? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns 
and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You also find the similar wording in Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. But why do we sing? Why is it that we sing anyway in worship? Well, because according to Psalm 40, verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust the Lord. Psalm 95, in the first three verses, say this, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come, into him, come to him with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. See, we're to greet God with unashamed enthusiasm. Why? Because he is our rescuer. Now, I'll bet you didn't know that the Bible contains over 600 references to people singing praises to God. It's pretty impressive. 600 references of singing praises to God. Of the 66 books of the Bible, 44 of them contain references to music. It's important. There is actually more said in Scripture about singing than there is about prayer, believe it or not. D.L. Moody once pointed out that music and song have not only accompanied all spiritual revivals, but are essential in deepening one's spiritual life. Singing does at least as much as preaching to impress the word of God upon people's minds. If you think about that, D.L. Moody always had his song leader. Billy Graham always had his song leader. The preaching of the word and the singing of the word always go together, don't they? Number seven, worship involves shining. Shining. Verse 10. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Glory in his holy name. When you celebrate the Lord, let me ask you a question. Do you shine? Do you glow? To glory in his name literally means to be clear. Its root meaning is to radiate light as the sun does and the moon reflects light in the stars. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine, Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5. Our responsibility, said F.B. Meyer, is not to ignite the flame, not to supply the oil, not to trim the wick. Our simple duty is to guard against anything that might obstruct the outshining of God from our souls. That's it. Don't let anything obstruct what God wants to shine forth out of us. That's our duty. And Philippians chapter 2 kind of reflects that and intimates that. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. I can't think of two more pertinent verses that we should be putting in the forefront of our mind as we leave the house or as we go anywhere during this time right now because there is so much darkness and obstruction in the world today. Who's going to bring light into it if the Christians don't do it? We should be appearing as lights in the world, not shadows, not clouds. Our responsibility again, is to shine. Are you radiating light or do you bring a cloud with you wherever you go? Those who are seeking him will shine. Others will darken the room. Number eight, worship involves seeking. Verse 11, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Now, folks, if we're not shining, then we should be seeking right? It's like a glow-in-the-dark watch. You, you have to expose yourself to the light for a long time before those hands and the face of that watch glows at night, right? 
So we should be seeking him. And there are two different words for seeking used here, which imply two different kinds of seeking. Number one, seeking with care in order to find him, to pursue hard after him and to follow him. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus' words really reflect this. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. That's the first kind of seeking. The second kind of seeking here in this verse is seeking his face to know him more intimately. So Psalm 27, verses 4 and 8, David says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, will I seek. How well do you want to know God? How well? Second Chronicles chapter 15 in verse 2 says, If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Columnist Herb Keen wrote in the San Francisco Chronicle, Every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows that it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning, a lion wakes up. It knows that it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. So it doesn't matter whether you are a lion or you're a gazelle, when the sun comes up, you better be running. C.H. Spurgeon wrote these words, he wrote, likewise, he said, quote, if you are not seeking the Lord, then the devil is seeking you. If you're not seeking the Lord, judgment is right at your heels, unquote. In the Christian life, my friends, it is not enough simply to wake up. We are called to run, to become more like Christ, and to press ahead in godliness. I believe Peter Marshall understood the common reality of our worship when he confessed that God is far more willing to be found than we are to seek. And that's often the case. So here's your worship assignment for this week on these things. I want to take a minute right now. We're going to take 60 seconds, one minute right now to quiet yourself, bow your head, close your eyes, whatever it is you need to do to seek the Lord and ask him to search our hearts and reveal to us any lack that we might have in this area of seeking him. Ready? Go ahead. Okay. One minute. One minute. And you can do that all throughout the day. But if that's what you can do in one minute, think of what an hour would bring. So I encourage you, take the time to seek his face. Number nine. Worship involves remembering. Worship involves remembering. Beginning in verse 12. Remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and the judgments from his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. He also confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. And when they were only a few in number, very few and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them and he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Look at what's going on in this passage of Scripture. In worship revolves around remembering, remembering his deeds. Remember how God's worked in your life. Remember his marvels. Now, we've all had miracles performed in our lives by God at some point, I think. Remember them. Remember his judgments because they're sobering and they keep us on track. 
That's in verse 14. And then remember his covenant, the grace that he's bestowed on us. Now, in this particular context, it was the Abrahamic covenant that, that, David, that um, they were pointing to. But the old covenant was one thing. But there's a new covenant that we celebrate, isn't there? And we just had communion last week as a reflection and a celebration of that new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Fast forward to the New Testament in Luke chapter 22 and verse 20, at the Last Supper, at the Passover, Jesus says, and in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Imagine the chills that must have run through the disciples' spines as they heard Jesus use the word new covenant, that this is fulfilled in me, and we are the recipients of that, you and I, you and me. Hebrews chapter 10 really pretty much summarizes it all and, and gives it all to us in blatant form. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 15, beginning in verse 15. Let me read. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. And he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Once for all. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then these words, which we all know, in context, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. My friends, there is reason to rejoice. Christ has forgiven us for all of our sins through his shed blood on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. This is something that we need to celebrate, not only celebrate, but we need to proclaim it. We need to celebrate it because it's available to everyone, so therefore everyone must know. Amen? A true celebration of worship is a worship that actually witnesses. Whenever we, can, whenever we celebrate this kind of memorial, whether it's through communion or our remembrance of Christ's new covenant, says Paul, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a proclamation, and that's number 10. Worship involves proclamation. Look at verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the peoples, among all the peoples. The picture behind this word proclamation is, is, is the concept of a messenger fresh from the battlefield bringing news of triumph and victory over our enemies. There were watchmen that eagerly awaited this good news, waiting for these, these runners, these messengers fresh from the battlefield. The New Testament uses the word evangelize for this word proclaim to explain that declaration. And although the ultimate good news was announced by the heavenly angels at Christ's birth, remember that? First chapters of, of Luke For unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the good news of salvation. Although it was first announced there by the heavenly angels, we have been commissioned to pass it on to others. Proclaiming the good news of salvation is a major part of our worship experience. It is both an act of worship and it is the result of our worship. 
We are the battle-scarred messengers fresh off the battlefield of a spiritual war proclaiming victory in Christ Jesus. Amen? Isn't that what we are as Christians? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 54. Paul's talking about what our new bodies will be like when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news coming off the battlefield that one day, one day, death will be done away with completely. That's the victory. That's the victory there and then. But what is the victory here and now? Verse 58, therefore, in light of that victory, this is what we must do. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And that begs the question, are you doing it? Am I doing it? Are we doing it enough? Are we engaged in the battle? Are you abounding in the work of the Lord, toiling at it? Because if we're not doing it, our worship experience is likely feeling like it's incomplete because it is incomplete because worship involves proclamation. 11, worship involves declaration. Very similar. Verse 24, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. This word tell here, tell of his glory among the nations, literally means to score with a mark as a tally or a record. When we tell of the Lord's glory among the nations, what we're doing is we are listing and speaking about all the things that God has done. You keeping a tally of that in your head and in your heart? This is precisely what God commanded in his Old Testament of the people of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Parents were commanded to pass on to their children all that God had done. The listening of God's incredible deliverances in the story of our salvation is exactly what one generation should be passing on to the next generation. But we have become, sad to say, a generation who is apathetic about passing on anything. Generally speaking, I'm not saying in every case. Somewhere along the line, beginning with my generation, the baby boomers, a very large segment of the subsequent generations are unconcerned, became unconcerned about passing on anything to their kids. Most are just concerned about trying to make it through today. And we're so concerned with that that we seldom take the time to pass on our own heritage of faith to others. You know how I know that? Because we're a generation without stories. I come from a generation without stories. My grandfather's generation had tons of stories to tell. Tell about the old ways, about faith, and if you were privileged enough to come from a Christian family, you probably heard from your grandparents all the stories about how God worked in their lives. My generation, pretty much we don't have such a legacy. Let me ask you a question. What will you leave your kids with to pass on to their children? Because they ought to know about the Lord. It's essential. It's an essential part of how we worship God. Have you, do your kids even know your testimony? Have you ever sat down and given your testimony to your own children and your grandchildren, if you have them? Psalm 78, verses 5 and 6 say this. 
For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. Here's your worship assignment. Make it a point to get together with someone over coffee for, or, or over a meal for the sole purpose of sharing your story with them. Trading stories. Do it with your own children. Why not do it while you still have breath? I just did this last week with somebody. And this guy told me his story, and I was completely mind-boggled, just blown away by his story and how God worked in his life. I just refreshed in me a spirit of worshiping God for who he is. God, only you could have done something like this for this man. I'm telling you, it's powerful, and it's what we need to do in our worship experience. Number 12, worship involves acknowledgement. Worship involves acknowledgement. Verse 28, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Notice that phrase, ascribe to the Lord. It's the heartbeat of worship. That's why it's repeated three times in this passage. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. And you know what it is? It is the honor that we give to the Lord because he is worthy of all of our praise and all of our glory, all, all the glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, and power, and strength. This is what they're doing in Revelation as they worship God. Ascribing to the Lord the honor due his name. Who's involved? All the families and all the people, it says in the text. What do we ascribe to the Lord? Glory and strength. Why do we ascribe it? Because it's due his name. That's what we're going to be doing in heaven. It means that we stand on the premises of all that we believe who God is. And so I want to do that right now. The worship assignment I'm going to give you right now starts right now. So I'd like you to stand, if you would, with me. And we're going together to do something we don't often do in this church. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed. So follow along with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. That is our manifesto. That is what we believe. That is ascribing glory to God because of these things. Don't get thrown by the Holy Catholic Church thing. The word Catholic thing there means universal. It means get commune, community of the church. Number 13, worship involves giving. Worship involves giving and number 14, it involves coming before him. That's all in the second part of verse 29. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Now, did you realize that bringing an offering is an act of worship? I think probably most of you already know this. But the question is, what's your hard attitude in giving away whatever it is that you're sacrificing to the Lord? I mean... If you're not giving to the Lord or you're complaining about doing it, then you haven't really got a handle on what this is all about. And uh, I'm not going to go into it now because I think most of you realize this, but there's a whole sermon series that I have on giving and how it regards to worship. But when you give an offering, let's just suffice it to say that when you give an offering, do it as if Jesus was the one passing the plate. 
And if he held out the plate to you and watched what you gave, would you be ashamed or would you be glad about it? So when we give to the Lord with a worshipful heart, there's absolutely no shame involved. It's not about amount. It's about heart. It's about us giving with hilarious, hilarious joy and confidence in God's presence. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, the classic verse on giving. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Laugh your socks off while you're doing it because you've got such joy in doing it because that's really what the word means. Number 15, worship involves humility. And number 16, worship involves fear. Humility and fear. Again, verse 29, ascribe to the, uh, I'm sorry, worship the Lord in holy array. Tremble before him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. So taken together, these are the most sobering of all the elements of worship that we're studying here today. And yet I believe the ones least practiced by most people. The word worship here means to tremble. It means actually, it means to prostrate oneself in homage to royalty. It means to bow down in adoration. Okay? To get low before the Lord. Now let me ask you a serious question. How often does that happen in our services. Raising hands, clapping, bowing, kneeling, dancing, lifting eyes, and prostrating ourselves create a major problem for some people in worship. Yet every single one of those things is a biblical posture of worship found in the Bible. If you get right down to it, Sitting in chairs and watching worship as a spectator is totally and absolutely a non-biblical concept. It's not there. Worship is a verb. It's participative. If you come to church and you just sit and listen and watch, you haven't worshiped. The Jewish concept of worship involved the release of the whole person before God. Check this out, because it's going to astound you. It did me. With biblical scholar William Hendrickson once did a careful analysis of all the Old Testament occasions when bodily praise was used in worship. This is what he found. He found four instances of bowing heads. Six references to standing in reverence. Nine examples of lifting the eyes toward God. Twelve instances of kneeling. Fourteen descriptions of hands raised toward God. Now watch this. And 28 references to people laying prostrate before the Lord. As Dr. David Jeremiah observed, if the frequency with which these things are mentioned in the Old Testament is in any sense related to their importance, our current worship practices are exactly the opposite of what Scripture says is important. How many times have you come into this church, for example, and found people laying on the floor, prostrate before the Lord in worship? You know what? I had an incredibly hard time finding a good image of someone worshiping face down before the Lord. I finally came up with this one, and it's not the best picture in the world, but it's there. Other than Catholic priests and Muslims. I found all kinds of pictures of them being prostrate before the Lord, but not too many of just other denominations. That's a sad thing, isn't it? What do we do most often? We bow our heads. 
What do we almost never do? That. Fall down before God in fear and trembling. We don't do it that often. Not corporately anyway. Some of you may do it in your private quiet time. But worshiping the Lord in holy array means to worship him in the splendor and the beauty of his holiness. Not our holiness, God's holiness. Psalm 96.9 says this, Worship the Lord in holy attire in the New American Standard Bible. We worship God in the splendor of his holiness, in holy array, in holy attire, by putting on the clothing of humility and sincerity and purity and certainty and by acknowledging his holiness and surrendering ourselves completely to him. That's what it means to worship God in the splendor of his holiness. One pastor vividly pointed out that babies are born with clenched fists. Your fists clenched. That's an appropriate picture of our human sinfulness, isn't it? Babies want what they want when they want it. That's why you get up at 2 o'clock in the morning to feed them and take care of them. If clenched fists are a way of saying, I want my way, and there's a lot of clenched fists going on right now in the world, then open hands are a way of saying, Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way. But this is a command to get low before the Lord. It's part of our service that we owe to him because we realize who he is and who we are in comparison. Did you know that the, what the word trembling means in the Hebrew? It means trembling. <laughs> it means to shake, even to shake in fear. You cannot come into the presence of God without an element of fear and trembling. Not really if you're in his presence. No one who ever saw God's glory in the Bible stayed standing for very long. Read the first chapter of Revelation when John saw him. Read Isaiah. Psalm 95, verses 6 through 8 says, says this, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I love this. I'm going to share a quote with you from Annie Dillard from Teaching a Stone to Talk. It's one of my most favorite quotes of all time. Annie Dillard said this, On the whole... I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. That's such a rich quote about worship. But if you want something a little more lighthearted but still heavyweight, in the Chronicles of Narnia, by C.S. Lewis, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. They're describing Aslan, the lion, representing Christ in the story to Lucy and Susan and Peter. And the children who are fearful about meeting Aslan for the first time. Their reaction illustrates our fears of coming into God's presence. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. 
He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. That's what it's about. Let me ask you, do you long to come before God? Do you dare? Do you realize that when you come before God, it must be in humility and reverential fear? We know our place. Here's your worship challenge. Take time this week to find a quiet place of solitude. Kneel, bow, raise your hands, prostrate yourself, falling down before him in your heart. And trust me, if you do this quite often, you will find that it can become an addicting way to pray and to worship God. And it really puts us in the proper frame of mind. Number 17, worship involves a benediction. A benediction. Verse 34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then say, save us, O God, our salvation, of our salvation, and gather us and deliver us from the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, even to everlasting. And then all the people said amen and praised the Lord. Notice that the psalm now ends in the same way it began with thanksgiving. But it goes on to affirm and petition God's blessing. It shows that the closer we come to God, the longer we are in his presence, the less we want to remain in this world. You ever feel that way? I find that the people I know who really have close connection with the Lord and worship him regularly like this are constantly looking for the day when he comes back. They don't fear death. In fact, they, they almost look forward to it. It's the language of this benediction in verses 35 and 36. And of those whose hearts are completely God's, look at verses 35 and 36. They say, save us, gather us, deliver us. Save us, free us from the evil and restore happiness. Gather us, Abba, Abba, draw us close that we might be one with you in your heartbeat. And then deliver us, and I love this one, deliver us. That literally means pluck us out and snatch us away. Deliver us out of the hands of the enemy. I think this is an Old Testament reference that's similar to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 that says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be snatched up, caught up, delivered up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these things. Isn't that great? That's what the language is here. Save us, gather us, deliver us. Are you looking forward to his coming? Or would you rather he delay a little longer? If we're truly worshiping him now, I believe we wouldn't want to wait another minute. On the other hand, if we aren't worshiping him now, that might explain why we fear his coming. You know what I wanted more than the regathering of us getting together in this church building? The regathering of us together up there. But I know that God has work for us to do while we're here, doesn't he? So we better be about doing it. Someone once said that a place of worship should be of such character that it will be easy for men to find God and difficult for them to forget him. That's a great, great set of words right there. Your entire life and mine should be such a place where it is easy for men to find God and difficult for them to forget him. Let's pray that God would allow us to be those kinds of people. Look at verse 36, how this thing ends. Verse 36 says... Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Then all the people said, what? Amen. Amen. And they praised 
the Lord. And I love this part. This is, this is one of my favorite parts about this whole thing. Note the last two words. The last two words in the Hebrew text are these words. Hallel Yahweh, which means hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The last two words. That's how worship wraps up. So let's pray and the worship team can come and we can sing. Father of God in heaven, thank you for outlining this model of, of worship to us in your word. I pray, Lord God, that we would take this to heart, take it home and practice it. May we be practiced worshipers, not just so that we can be the best at it that we can be, but for your sake, Lord, that we can give you glory that you deserve. May we be the kind of worshipers that you seek, those who worship in spirit and in truth. For Jesus' sake I pray, amen.